With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 28 of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only roundtable podcast in compliance with a bevy of compliance practitioners and expert commentators. The Everything Compliance panel includes Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, Vice President at Affiliated Monitors, Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London. And now a word about this week's sponsor. This week, Everything Compliance is sponsored by the Complete Compliance Handbook. Released on May 21, 2018, the Complete Compliance Handbook is your one-volume compendium of best practices compliance programs. It incorporates the most recent pronouncements and guidance from the Department of Justice, including 2017's Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs and the new FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policies. In this single volume, I bring together the top ideas, topics, and techniques you can incorporate into your compliance program literally in 31 days to more fully operationalize your compliance program. If you want one volume to guide you in operationalizing compliance, this is it. Subsequent chapters include the role of HR, boards of directors, 360 degrees of communication, third-party risk management, reporting and investigations, internal controls, innovation and compliance written standards, business ventures, and continuism. The Complete Compliance Handbook is available through Amazon.com. Just type in the title and it'll pop up. If you'd like an autographed copy, please contact me, Tom Fox, and it's available on my website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com. In today's episode of Everything Compliance, the gang takes on the Michael Cohen slash Essential Consulting Imbroglio. Jay Rosen considers the lessons to be learned in hiring third parties. Matt Kelly considers the issue from the COSO angle. Mike Volkoff weighs in on search warrants and the Bank Secrecy Act perspective. And Jonathan Armstrong adds some great British snark. Stay tuned to the end where we have some great rants. I know you will enjoy it. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and we are back again for another episode of Everything Compliance. The Everything Compliance gang consists of Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, Jonathan Armstrong, soon to become Mr. GDPR, but currently working at Quartery Compliance in London, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Matt Kelly, and of course, Michael Volkoff, the founder of the Volkoff Law Group. Gentlemen, we are going to take up the uh, Michael Cohen saga today from a variety of angles. 
And I wanted to start with uh, Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. Jay, uh, from the compliance practitioner or the compliance program perspective, do you see any uh, lessons learned that we could throw out there for the audience? <clears throat> there might be one or two that we could share. Um, thanks, Tom. This, uh, the events of the past couple of weeks that just keep unfolding and showing the, the lack of thoughtful diligence by many multi-billion dollar corporations is just staggering. And uh, this re reminds me of a training that we were doing recently in Panama City. And one of the issues we were discussing was uh, JVs and third-party vendors. And the frustration that came up with a lot of the people that we were training, on, training with said, well, how do we deal with our uh, employees when they come to us with a single vendor? And there is basically um, you know, a whole range of issues that really need to be considered. And number one was, well, if this vendor keeps getting the job each time and you're supposed to be bringing two other candidates to the table, why is that happening? And the person who was trying to keep slipping their favorite choice through was saying that there was a single vendor and that what you needed to do was to prove that it's possible that this person was the only person who had the skills who could do this specific engineering task, but you really needed to go through and to do the diligence and demonstrate on there. So that's number one, you know, why is somebody so, so special, why they're selected? And if we're looking at the uh, subject matter that's under the microscope now that why a large communications company or why a large global pharmaceuticals company, why would they choose someone who is so ill-prepared and was a bad fit for the job that, uh, you know, how could you go in there and even after having that meeting and realizing that this person did not possess the requisite skills to go forward, how could you sign a contract that you could not pull the plug on and that it would go for over a year. So there really is a, a triage process that we see that you need to go through. And there are, seem to be many missteps along the way where there are opportunities to do diligence to find out whether or not uh, Michael Cohen was qualified to represent and speak to the ACA or was knowledgeable about net neutrality and could speak uh, to the issue of uh, communications, mergers and acquisitions. So we just really, uh, you know, from to, to back to your original point, Tom, about are there teaching moments and are there things that stand out? Um, those are the initial thoughts that, um, you know, come to, come to mind. So uh, now let me turn to Matt Kelly, because Matt, you wrote a very interesting piece where you talked about uh, a COSO uh, perspective or a COSO framework, particularly around uh, control activities and a control environment. So what did you see from that angle that so piqued your interest? Well, it, yeah, thank you, Tom. That came about because of an earlier post I had written uh, uh, in, I think, around May 11th or so. AT&T had won a corporate ethics award on May 8th. And that was the day that news broke that uh, many different companies had been paying Michael Cohen very large sums of money, including AT&T. And so that scandal came out several several hours after the compliance staff uh, received an award down in Texas and everybody was there for a nice luncheon. There's a nice 
photo of the senior executive and the chief compliance officer at AT&T getting that award. And then it all got ruined by this news, or not ruined, but overshadowed uh, by this news that AT&T actually was paying Michael Cohen. Um, And it really does not look very good. So that led me to kind of tease out the fact, and I want to be clear when I talk about AT&T that I know some of the compliance staff at AT&T, and I think they do a good job. I think they have a difficult job. And I am I do believe that a lot of the staff at AT&T do deserve the awards and accolades that they get for working hard. But that is all in the realm of what we would call control activities, according to COSO and its effective uh, internal control framework and all of that. Control activities are you know, when you actually put the policies in place, when you insert a control, when you test controls, when you do the training, it's like the the name implies, it's an activity. And those are all important. You cannot have good internal control or compliance without the actual activities. That said, another part of uh, effective internal control, and I think an effective compliance program would be under the control environment. And that is the tone at the top. That's the messaging from the executives. That's the design to hold people accountable, the desire to do the right thing. It's a much more ephemeral sort of um, element than control activities. But what AT&T did with Michael Cohen clearly was a flaw in the control environment. And I was just really struck by how a flaw in the control environment, a poor control environment, can overshadow all the other hard work that lower level people do in the activities that go into a strong internal control environment, a strong compliance program, all of that, you know, so you have the award, that's good, you deserve it, but nobody's going to remember that AT&T won the award. They're going to remember that a different part of AT&T thought it was a good idea to put this contract with Michael Cohen on the express train to approval. Um, They paid him an exorbitant amount of money, far beyond what they would normally pay a lobbyist. Uh, they were using him supposedly to consult with very sensitive matters in front of the Trump administration when really Michael Cohen had no expertise in telecom policy or in antitrust mergers. He simply had Donald Trump's personal cell phone number. To this day, we don't know where the $600,000 that they paid Michael Cohen, where did that money actually go? How was it actually spent? Did it wind up getting transferred to some other account, because we cannot put it past this administration and Michael Cohen that maybe he is going to be a conduit to a bribe that would go to some senior administration official to influence policy in favor of AT&T. Nobody's made that allegation yet, but the facts that we know can be aligned to paint that picture. And I was just, I was really struck that in any other country in the world, a compliance officer would have told AT&T executives, you cannot do that. That's a violation of the FCPA, or at the very least, our FCPA risk is going to be up to our eyeballs. Anywhere else, but here, it was okay. There's a they, they, what, what is the distinction? And while they might say that's because there's not a criminal bribery act here, it, it just does not pass the smell test. We don't know enough about what due diligence did or did not go into signing this uh, contract with Michael Cohen. We don't know who thought this was a good idea. I'm glad to see that they did put somebody out to pasture for that. Um, It shows some awareness of control environment because holding people accountable is part of a strong control environment. But 
it would have been a whole lot stronger if they had done their better due diligence long before this contract mess came out. It just it eclipsed the hard work that most AT&T compliance people did. And it really rubbed me the wrong way because, like I said, these are hardworking people. And it got it got eclipsed by just some dunderheaded thinking at the senior most ranks of AT&T. Well, I can't ri- uh, wait for your rant today. Uh, uh, Tom, <laughs> yes. can I ask Matt a question? Um, now, I, I hesitate to sound, you know, from our view across the pond as, as somebody who's, you know, not, not sharing your pain on this. And, and I also don't want to <laughs> say I told you so. But I've had a debate with U.S. clients over many, many years about their FCPA policies. And yes, they mostly call them FCPA policies, not anti-bribery policies. And the Mm -hmm. debate goes like this. Ordinarily, an FCPA policy uh, in its worst format spends maybe three pages telling you what a public official is and then says, these are the guys you can't bribe. You can't bribe a foreign public official. And I've had the conversation maybe 20 times of saying, do you really want to say you can't bribe a foreign public official? Or do you really mean to say you shouldn't bribe people? Because they're sort of two different things. And if you're a, an, if you're somebody in uh, a random place in Asia, you think, well, they've gone to the trouble of describing what a foreign public official is in three pages because they want me to bribe everyone else. Otherwise, why would they make that distinction? And, and I just wonder if this isn't another problem from the same lack of solution, i.e., because many U.S. corporations have concentrated on foreign bribery, foreign corruption, and because their policy talks about that all the time, if these corporations' policies have said, don't make payments, which don't stand up to scrutiny would we have had this problem but have we almost told people to look for the wrong problem or at least only one of the many problems in making payments to people that uh, are open to scrutiny you know i i think that's a very valid point to put forward jonathan and you're right if it were up to me i would start with a big bold-faced headline at the top of the anti bribery policy. Do not pay bribes. We win our transactions based on the merits of our arguments and the skill of our staff and the quality of our products, not on the amount of money we give somebody to do us a favor, period. Everybody gets that. I don't think that the concept of a bribe and the the immorality of it, I don't think that's a foreign idea to pretty much anybody in the world. Now, they'll have different interpretations of what's hospitality and all of that, but I think almost everybody knows when they're cheating. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I think. And that is something that people should be very clear about. What's the ethical principle here? Um, And then I think after that, it becomes much easier to explain to them the various situations that where you might find bribery risk that's heightened. And here's all the consequences we could have. But look back at that boldface thing. Win on the merits of the argument or the products or the people. Um, you know, you, everybody would say, sure, you can always hire the best lawyers and consultants in town to help you out, but nobody's going to say, and then you give them a bag of money to give to the, the guy on the other side so that they'll give you what you want. That's not what a lawyer is for. That's not what a consultant 
is for. We see it all the time in anti-bribery that, unfortunately, that is what these, quote, sales agents actually do, and we don't like it. Uh, so I, I think that it's a very valid point to say focus on the ethical principle first and then get into the technical stuff later. So, Mike Volkoff, you have uh, written, thought, and podcast quite a bit about the Mueller investigation, literally over, I would say, the last year. Uh, You've looked at the search warrants issued by Mueller. You've uh, also podcast on the search warrant issued by the Southern District of New York. How do you see the both the search warrant issued on um, Michael Cohen and, and the bank records that were leaked out that have led to the discussion we're having today from the legal perspective? Well, um, let's start first with the financial information. And by the way, just a quick comment on some of the earlier comments from Jonathan and from Matt and from Jay. Uh, I I endorse all of them. uh, But one thing I wanted to add is that you know, I think we're seeing more and more uh, cases with C-suite misconduct, upper-level misconduct. And here, AT&T's actions, to me, reflected their just complete overwhelming anxiety about who the hell Trump was and the fact that uh, they had, you know, a huge merger on the table and Trump had said he was going to oppose the merger. Um, and so this shows how desperate they were to try to get some angle into, um, Trump. And this had to reflect sort of an overall culture and attitude at the top, um, because it just doesn't make sense otherwise for them to just not conduct any due diligence, not even think about what they were doing or what the, uh, implications of it was. So. But let's go to the, the legal issue. I think there are a lot of really fascinating legal issues going on right now. One, uh, the leaking of the material from FinCEN, which I think is really, uh, this, and that would be the uh, suspicious activity reports, is clearly uh, a crime. Um, we don't know how it occurred. We have this one story that just came out about how it was a whistleblower Uh, or somebody from the inside who could not find uh, some of the reports and was concerned that there was a cover-up in place. Um, And then we heard an explanation that some highly sensitive SARS are sometimes not made available to everybody through the law enforcement database. Who knows? I I don't know exactly. I find it hard to believe that the information could be uh, taken out of the system and somehow Um, but this could have been somebody's mistaken belief that led him to do that. So um, I think uh, what's interesting is that, uh, and there supposedly are more SARS relating to another three or $4 million worth of transactions. To me, the interesting part about all of the money is not that he got it, uh, but where did it go? And that's going to be the interesting thing to me. And did he actually, you know, shake down the Qataris, uh, Michael Cohen, shake down the Qataris, uh, and also make it clear that some of the money was going to go to some of the Trump family members. Uh, To me, that's the real indication, uh, the real importance of all of this. However, I will say this. uh, I do think there's a big issue here by the fact that um, 
Mueller referred this out of the um, special counsel's purview and sent it to the Southern District of New York. And now we're finding out that every one of these sort of leads or transactions Mueller followed up on, meaning uh, he went and interviewed AT&T. He went and interviewed Novartis. He interviewed Ford Motor Company, who Cohen had tried to shake down for money as well. And I think the interesting point about that is why did he do, why did he refer this matter out? Did he find that there were no connections to the Russia um, part of his purview and the collusion or anything like that? We know he interviewed, for example, Vexelsberg, the, the, the oligarch, when he showed up at the border. And if there was real payment and, you know, quid pro quo type of uh, election support from any of, uh, from Becklesburg or others, he would have kept it. And the fact that he passed it on means that these leads are drying up. And it goes to my point overall on the collusion part of the investigation. Mueller doesn't have it yet. Mueller, and he, Mueller doesn't have enough evidence for collusion yet and assistance and support. Now, that's not to say that there's some people who still have to be heard from, like Roger Stone, like um, uh, Manafort, if he ever flips, Cohen himself, and even uh, Jared, if they put pressure on him, given his outright sort of bribery activity. So I think there are a lot of legal issues here circling around Cohen. Cohen is a dead man walking. Uh, and the question that he will face in his life is whether he wants to go to jail for 20 years or he wants to cooperate. And, you know, how that comes out, I think he'll flip in a heartbeat, but we'll, we'll have to see. Um, so those, but the SARS issue and, you know, look, Avenetti uh, uh, is a great marketer and he goes out there and demanded the release of the SARS and, you know, he's almost begging people to bring him information. And I think that's what happened in this case. Somebody took the information and brought it to him and he used it effectively. So anyways, those are my thoughts on that. And, uh, uh, and we'll have to see Cohen is a, is quite a character uh, to put it mildly. So let me throw out a question. Mike, let me ask you this question. Oh, sorry, Tom. No, go ahead, yeah. Matt. Well, my, my question for you, Mike, is more, let's say Mueller did look at all of this information and he didn't find that there was any collusion with Russia. Um, but I'm wondering, could there still be some sort of obstruction of, of justice charge? Like, is that if there were some sort of improper payments or funneling from companies to Cohen to Donald Trump on some offshore account or something like that? It's a big if. I'm not saying it happened. But if Donald Trump was afraid of something like that, and that's why he fired Jim Comey and is trying to shut it down, like does that, that qualify as an obstruction charge that could uh, somehow get him tripped up, I don't know, either by Mueller or, or some other prosecutorial well, I, avenue? No, I, th I think that the, the interesting question to me is he definitely has um, he definitely has an obstruction case. There's no question in my mind. But he's not going to bring it or he's not going to recommend just bringing it solely when he doesn't can't answer the basic question of, well, if he didn't engage in Russian collusion, why would he obstruct justice? Well, the real reason that he was obstructing justice and didn't want anybody looking into anything and his freak out over Cohen is the fact that he either was taking some of this money 
or he has a long history of money laundering with Cohen. And when you read more and more about Cohen and the real estate transactions, I mean, they were laundering money for the Russians. And, and there's no question we have high real estate transactions uh, that make no sense in, in New York City as well as Florida. So to me, the really interesting question is we're going to have obstruction but we're going to have this part of the investigation that provides the motive for the obstruction, which is going to be in the Southern District of New York. And so then let's say SDNY, they bring the case against Cohen. Cohen flips uh, cooperating in the SDNY case because there are going to be co-conspirators involved with him there. And he's going to get charged in a huge conspiracy. But then Mueller is going to say, well, we want to debrief and we want part of Cohen as well. I don't think the case would then go, they can't move the whole case uh, back to Mueller. So I think what's going to happen is they're going to be coordinated and working together. And uh, then what happens with the Trump part? You then transfer, you, you submit a report to Rosenstein that references an ongoing investigation in the Southern District of New York. It seems to me like you've got to marry those up at some point for what gets delivered to Congress. That's where we're headed. Um, and it's an interesting issue to me about how you navigate all this, given the politics, the special counsel, regulations, and the fact that the SDNY is going to create a huge related case. And frankly, I think they're going to uncover money laundering activities with the Russians that predates the election. And that's where, if you guys have any predictions as to where that might, may go and may happen, I, I have no idea. I mean, your guess is... I, I, I think you're 100% right. Yeah. Jonathan, and, you got a question uh, for Mike. Yeah, I've, I've got another question, Mike. Um, I, I was over in the U.S. a, a week or so ago, and surprised with my distant eyes to see uh, Rudy Giuliani all over this. So how good a job is he doing? And and tactically, why, why do you think he's involved? Well, I think the, the it's a pure political play right now of witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt to discredit uh, Mueller. And um, it's unfortunate. Uh, but frankly, Rudy Giuliani is helping uh, Mueller more than he's helping Trump. Uh, and he's delaying uh, calls for, you know, he's sort of uh, taking pressure off of everybody with his buffoonery. And um, he is clearly lost his marbles. Um, I heard one story, his first appearance at Fox News, he apparently, uh, you know, was out uh, having dinner and had a liquid dinner before mm -hmm. he went in there and, you know, disclosed the, the, uh, the, um, the payment to Stormy Daniels and, you know, this retainer theory. Boy, I, I tell you, I'm looking for a legal practice where somebody will pay me $35,000 a month for doing nothing. Uh, mm -hmm. Although some people claim that I do that already. But <laughs> How is you know, that different than now? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so, I, I mean, some of the, and, and for him, this, and then what I loved was when Rudy said, uh, you know, I do this for my clients all the time. And then Greenberg Traurig, his firm says, we don't do this, these type of payments for any clients. And he was gone the next day from the firm. So, I mean, it just is a joke 
to be honest with you. The guy is senile and he's uh, he's a buffoon. And the more that he talks, I mean, it's entertaining and it's great for the late night. You know, I watch Colbert. Mm. Uh, you know, it's fantastic for the late night materials. I don't think he's helping at all. Uh, like this week, for example, him saying that, you know, they told him that uh, the special counsel told him that they're not going to indict a sitting president. I don't think anybody expected that. Uh, nobody's surprised by that. Mueller is not going to change policy. Mueller is not going to. He's going to. I'm going to tell you my sense of what Mueller is doing is he knows he's got he's got these guys and he's not pushing the envelope on anything. And the Southern District of New York ploy was the most we're going to look back on this and going to say that was the strategically the smartest thing he ever did was to refer that part of the case over to SDNY who he knows is just as good as the people that he has working on his staff, but it gives him political cover. It was a really smart move. So Mike, I'd like to uh, follow, follow up exactly on that point, which is the referral to the Southern district of New York, but maybe taking a little bit different direction. Uh, the reputation of the Southern District of New York is sterling, uh, if not equal to Maine justice, certainly uh, 1A to 1B with the quality of their lawyers, the quality of their prosecutions, the quality of the head of the office, and that there is still a fair amount of, um, if not hurt feelings, uh, sensitivity at the way uh, Preet Bharara was treated uh, by Trump and his termination by Trump and that uh, these individuals are highly motivated. I was wondering if you might, you touched on kind of the quality of, of lawyers, uh, but how does, how would that work really in parallel to what Mueller's doing in terms of moving forward to trial? Well, I think, look, the office has a great reputation. I mean, we would, when I was in the DC office, we would always lose out when we fought over a case you know, as to who should do it, we would lose every time and justice would always pick the Southern District of New York. Um, I think I'm going to tell you, even with the pre-Ferrara, you know, mishap, the people who are there, there's such a culture of professionalism uh, that I really don't think, I mean, it may enter into sort of the back of their minds, but I don't think they would ever do anything motivated by that. Um, more, but I do think the people who are probably most energized right now are not necessarily the prosecutors, I mean, although they are because it's an important case, but the FBI agents. Um, I do think the agents, they are the type that will grumble and take this seriously, the attacks on them. And even though New York has had you know, many pro-Trump people, I think when you have pro uh, professionals uh, who are sort of threatened in this way. I mean, never have we really seen an attack on the FBI like this. Um, that I think they're going to uh, really dig harder than they would otherwise and just be as professional and as careful as they can. Um, I do think, uh, I think these people are going to speak with a lot of um, credibility. Uh, and when we start to see indictments in this case, they're going to be really... I mean, incredibly well done. Every, like when I looked at the filing they did in the fight over the search warrant uh, in New York, 
uh, I mean, it was very well done, very professional, and uh, a little bit of overkill, but they're just worried they want to, you know, make their points. Uh, so I, I think they're going to be, you know, totally professional here uh, in the end. So, Matt, uh, I think you had a question teed up for the group. I do. You know, here's one thing that is on my mind, and I'd welcome any other observations. Getting back to the companies that had paid Michael Cohen, um, I will concede that perhaps under U.S. bribery law, this is not going to qualify as a criminal violation that they have to worry about. Although I wouldn't also be surprised if that turns out to be wrong if we find some other smoking gun. But anyways, putting that aside, I'm still struggling to figure out if they have any sort of books and records headaches on their mind now because of this that um like i said before clearly if michael cohen was the uh fixer for justin trudeau up in canada or for the president of mexico and they were paying him the sec would be all over this looking for documentation of who was the sales agent and if you go through the criteria under fcpa guidance of how you would evaluate a third party you know it's questions like did this party actually provide services that they had promised? Um, were they in ever in a position to do that? Were you paying them a commensurate rate to their competitors? You know, all of those answers to those questions are no under the Michael Cohen scenario. It's just there's no criminal violation because it happened here. But I'm still struggling to figure out whether the Securities and Exchange Commission, at least in theory, they could wind up um, they could explore a books and records violation under federal securities law on the accounting side, because this still looks to me like very bogus, fishy stuff just on that. Um, so I don't know what the answer is, uh, but yeah, I keep coming back to the fact that this would be such a big deal for these companies if it were in any other country in the world. But on the civil side, this could still be a big deal, I think. Uh, I think you're right, Matt, uh, on that, because, um, uh, I mean, this goes back to, uh, you know, when Sporkin, Judge Sporkin, uh, you know, pushed for the books and records uh, requirement, um, this was exactly, we had campaign donations that were being paid in cash uh, to various companies that he just was like, how can these public companies be doing this and not reporting it? So these guys better, all of these companies better put it down accurately. They, they paid $1.2 to Michael Cohen for consulting services or whatever you want to call essential consultants um, or whatever. I mean, I don't even know if they had an engagement letter. I just, you know, who knows, but it better be accurate. And whether the SEC will follow up, I tend, uh, I don't think they will, but they should. Sorry, Mike. Yeah, go ahead. I was wondering if there's possibly uh, another aspect to this as well um, to, to pick up your question, um, Matt. Now, the big caveat, I'm not an expert in, in, in Swiss law, but if there are allegations against Novartis, then from what I understand, the Swiss criminal code has similar uh, provisions to the FCPA. I think it's Article 322, which says offering, promising or giving an undue advantage to a Swiss public official or third party in order to cause the, the public official to carry out or fail to carry out an act 
uh, is um, is effectively prohibited. And then there are mirror provisions under uh, the same article for uh, uh, people who are connected with a foreign state or international organisation. Now, what we've seen, I think, certainly from the UK, is the Swiss authorities cooperating much more with international investigations and providing details of banking arrangements, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I guess my question is, I guess a lot of countries owe Switzerland one in terms of cooperating with their investigation. So the other aspect that could be interesting is if the Swiss authorities decide to get involved, then presumably they can make requests of the US authorities for banking records that the US has. So that could possibly, I suspect, be another interesting aspect to the investigation and and bring things like books and records into play more as well, could it? You know, Jonathan, I think that is um, an excellent point. I think it, you're right that it's it's a bit rich that, you know, we've all leaned on the Swiss authorities for so long. And now if the Swiss want us to do repay the favor, are we going to do it? Um, the other thought that I have also been having for a while is I was struck by how quickly AT&T and then Novartis uh, coughed up the ball and admitted that, yes, we did give money to Michael Cohen. But really... I think, you know, for every other compliance officer listening to this podcast, let's remember that so far we know about maybe 20 to 25 percent of the millions of dollars that went through essential consultants. We only know about a quarter of or a third of where that money came from. This majority of it, we do not yet know where it came from. There are at least two other suspicious activity reports for even more money. We don't know whose companies are in there. Think of this. The reason why AT&T and Novartis did their mea culpa so soon is that the fact of dealing with Cohen is a very sharp knife in corporate politics right now. And if the CEOs do not pick it up and cut off their own pinky finger, some other opponent in their organization is going to pick it up and slit their throats because some, some other person within AT&T or Novartis has it out for the sitting CEO. Goes if they could dig up these facts that you were dealing with Michael Cohen and you've been sitting on it now for the weeks we've all known, they shotgun this off to the internet. They shared with Michael Avenetti. Suddenly, this CEO is in danger of losing their jobs. So I would just maybe encourage everybody, if you have not already done so, crawl all over your accounting payable department and find out if there is anything within a hundred miles of Michael Cohen and Essential Consultants. Because if there is is your CEO just on politics and survival alone, you need to get that out right now. Um, but I could see some people deciding to stay quiet and hope nothing bad is going to happen. And guys, that's not the way the world's going to work. Something bad is going to happen. You might as well take the hit now. Hey, Matt, internally, you could call that uh, program Drain the Swamp. You could indeed, Yes. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, this, the knowledge of whether your company has Michael Cohen risk, like that is Game of Thrones level uh, intrigue. And really, you know, if CEO suspects you might have a problem, or if you think your company might get to the bottom of that, get that out. Because if it comes out through some other source, nothing good is going to happen. So let me let me just step back to the internal controls because I want to uh, use the United Airlines uh, SEC 
enforcement action under the FCPA uh, as a potentially or perhaps a guide for where the SEC could go with this. Uh, United Airlines was um, agreed to a fine and penalty for an FCPA books and records violation for a domestic bribe. And that was a bribe of the chairman of the Port Authority of New Jersey and New York. The, uh, but there was actually a bribe in that case paid, and the recipient of the bribe uh, pled guilty uh, to receiving uh, a bribery payment. But the SEC FCPA enforcement action was based upon the United CEO overriding or not following the company's internal control, which was the code of conduct. The code of conduct specified that there would not be a payment or a benefit given to a government official without the approval of the board of directors, and the CEO personally ordered it. We have that exact situation now with Novartis because the Novartis, prior Novartis CEO, I should emphasize, had ordered that this contract with um, Cohen be executed uh, or, or signed, and the general counsel effected uh, that order. Uh, we don't know how high up the information went at AT&T, but if there was an incorrect description or this is a deemed to be a benefit uh, to a politician uh, or uh, in violation of the AT&T code of conduct, we now have at least a precedent for uh, code of conduct being, being an internal control and that internal control when being overridden in such manner without appropriate oversight, discussion, and approval, uh, that being a violation of effective internal controls and an FCPA violation, even with everything happening inside of the United States. Uh, Novartis is an issuer in the United States, so they're going to be subject to that. So I think that's at least a possibility, uh, particularly with or if the payment, the specific payment made by Novartis violated Swiss law, because then we have a violation of the law, and every code of conduct uh, prohibits violation of the law. You know, Tom, if I could follow up on that, I think those are excellent points. Um, specific to AT&T first, you know, if the question is how seriously does the company take its code of conduct as an internal control, my guess is that if, you know, if you're winning ethics awards and touting that, you know, maybe, probably you would normally say, yes, our code of conduct is that serious. Um, you know, it just, it is a terrible, epically bad example of bad timing with AT&T winning that award. Um, but the other point I wanted to raise uh, for compliance officers out there, it is really worth reading an interview that Forbes had with the now ex CEO of Novartis, the one who had approved the Michael Cohen deal, um, where he very frankly admitted he didn't understand exactly who Michael Cohen was. And it wasn't until after they signed the contract where he actually said to the interviewer, I wish there had been somebody there to tell me to slow down and maybe to say no, and this wasn't a good idea. And all I could think of was, God, your compliance officers must feel awful hearing you actually said that. In the press, the CEO, I wish we had somebody. Jeez, guy, I mean, do you ever think that maybe these compliance officers are there for a reason? Because all of this screams out it's compliance for the low-level employee and third parties, but not for me, the senior executive. I get to use my own judgment, and that is that is a terrible precedent to have set. It's a terrible attitude to have. Uh, I've got a link to that Forbes article on one of my blog posts there, but it, it just... It was an appalling thing to say if you're a compliance officer. 
So I have a question I'd like to throw out for the group. Uh, we've talked about the reputational hits that both AT&T and Novartis um, took. Uh, Mike Volkoff touched on the interview of both Novartis and AT&T by the Mueller campaign. One of the things that has struck me is the new and different risks which this uh, situation has shown that companies now need to consider. It's certainly one thing uh, to be in the press with dealing with a, a dodgy character, but I think it's an entirely different level when the special counsel of the United States contacts your company for what you think is a completely unrelated matter uh, that you've now got to be thinking about. And I guess, Matt, maybe I'll start with you because you tend to think about broader ERP questions how can you begin to uh, even recognize the risks that your company could take from engaging people? Well, I mean, I don't want to sound flip, but to a certain extent, there should be some common sense involved. And the the higher up you are, you know, the reason you make all of that money as a senior level is because you supposedly do have good judgment. And good judgment is fundamentally rooted in common sense. Um, I think anybody who watched the election in folding in 2016, Michael Cohen was often on the news talking up in support of Donald Trump. Um, look, he looked like a squirrely and shifty kind of a guy then. He certainly was in 2017, and I think he still is today. You know, and I don't even make that much money to get to, to exercise my kind of judgments. I mean, let, let's try and keep some of the simple stuff simple. Um, but I do think that it's more about drilling home the importance of thinking, the importance of exercising good judgment and explaining to your employees what the good is in good judgment. It's about what is the outcome that we want. Um, you know, I, like I often say, I think a lot of the complaints issues that we encounter are very similar to how would you want to raise your kids? And do you want them to? have a legally defensible argument about why you shouldn't punish them for doing something wrong? Or do you want them to admit that they did something wrong? I know how I would like my children to behave uh, as they grow older, and who knows how they actually will, but I can dare to dream. Um, or, you know, it's like some of it is just, it's just that. And we can talk about how you then try and track all of that, those decisions, how you try and quantify it, how you try to analyze it, what data do you extract, we could talk about that for a whole other podcast all afternoon, but I, to a certain extent, I just I stop there and I say, you know, like it's the control environment, it's the thoughts, it's the core values, and a lot of them. If you can sweat that, you'll have a lot less of the technical challenge that you need to worry about because all of it will be smaller. If your your employees are generally making better decisions, so that's I don't know. That, that that's where I stand. Mike, Jonathan, anything uh, to add to that? I've just got a quick thing. I, I think looking at it from a more global level, I think the, the other element I think that's regrettable about this incident is we've relied on the U.S. to take a lead in stamping out corruption. And I can remember speaking at, uh, at an event, being invited by the government of that country that had experienced a big corruption um, uh, episode, and both the UK and the US had sent along speakers. I was fortunate to be the UK one. The US ambassador spoke, and 
the odd person was saying, how can she come here and lecture us when she got her position after raising $9 million for the campaign of a guy to become president? So we've always had that, um, I don't know, sniping from the choir stalls or whatever. The difficulty is now, I think, that whenever any corporation goes and says bribing is the wrong thing to do to their workforce uh, around the world, that message has got materially harder to deliver for compliance officers. And, and I think that will be the lasting element of shame, regrettably, from, you know, when all of this is done and dusted. Well, on that cheery note, gentlemen, uh, <laughs> let's turn to uh, some rants. So I thought we might, uh, we'll just start with uh, Mr. Volkov, then we'll move to Mr. Kelly, swing across the pond to Mr. Armstrong, and then back all the way to Southern California for uh, Jay Rosen. So uh, Mike Volkov, do you have a rant for us? Uh, well, it, we Matt and uh, everyone have sort of touched on it, but it is uh, C-suite misconduct, CEOs, Bumblebee's CEO in the tuna fish price fixing in, uh, investigation was just indicted. Uh, Mr. Wintercorn from BW just uh, indicted. Uh, and we have uh, the Panasonic avionics uh debacle in the FCPA area, uh, basically run by the CEO who was ultimately fired. Um, and now we have uh, the Novartis CEO uh, and all of these examples. And so we're starting again with the C-suite misconduct and the devastating impact it has on a company. Uh, you can have all the bells and whistles and empowered uh, CCOs working in companies, and it just goes to show you that if the controls don't apply and the program doesn't apply to your C-suite, these are the types of things that can happen. Matt Kelly, you've been on a rant pretty much the entire podcast, but do you have an extra special one for us in our rant section? You know, I feel like I have, have been doom and gloom enough for this hour, so I'm actually going to go with a probably a quasi-rave or, uh, at the very least, just an item for everybody's radar screen. Uh, as many of you might already have heard, uh, the state attorney general for New York, uh, Eric Schneiderman, he had to resign amid sexual assault allegations the other week. He has been out. And so one of the grand questions now is who might run for office for New York Attorney General in the fall? And uh, I have been a follower of uh, Preet Bharara, since we mentioned him earlier, uh, a follower of his since he was the U.S. Attorney for Southern District of New York. And I've met him personally. I think he's a very effective attorney and a very nice guy. And I listen now to his podcast, Stay Tuned, which is probably the second or third best podcast after all of them that we do with you, Tom. Um, <laughs> but uh, now the question is, might Preet Bharara run for New York Attorney General? And I was struck that the other day he mentioned that on one of his webcasts where he said that he, in every way possible, he said he would not run except to actually say, I am not going to run. He did not say that. He said he loved his job and it's a big job and shouldn't we think about it and there's great candidates. 
in my many years of political observation and reporting, that generally means they're trying to figure out how they can run. Um, now I see some rumors that maybe he might run as an independent for state attorney general. I don't know if any of that is true. I think New York voters would be well served by Preparara again if he uh, did decide to seek public office. My only beef with Preparara is that um, earlier this week he uh, said that he is on the Yanni team when it's does the audio say Yanni or Laurel? Um, of course, if you hear that audio on the internet, anybody with two brain cells can, in my opinion, see that clearly. That audio says Laurel, but he says it says Yanni, so maybe I would not vote for him if I was in New York just on those grounds. But otherwise, I think he's a great guy. I think he would be a great attorney general. I'm very curious to see where he might go in his future, and uh, it's worth watching. So across the pond to Mr. Armstrong, anything uh, on your mind? Yeah, I'm changing topic slightly. Inane GDPR re-opt-in emails. <laughs> uh, in, <laughs> in, in many cases, they break the existing law. It's like emailing a confession to 32,000 of your closest friends. Um, hopefully, they will stop in a week or so. They should have stopped a lot earlier. Jay Rosen, do you have a rant for us? Indeed, I do, Tom. Uh, looking at the Major League Baseball standings in the Eastern Conference of the American League, my Red Sox are playing over 666 baseball, 32 and 15, and those damn Yankees win 19 in a row or something like that. We got two guys with 15 homers, and it's May. And people are bugging me that the Red Sox ain't going to win. When is this ever going to stop? Out. And now you're in for a real treat because we have a special guest rant from Jim Moore. Jim, you got a rant for us? I do. Keeping with the sports theme, and in particular the Boston sports theme, I am going to rant about the referee in, in the last game between the Celtics and the Cavaliers. And I am going to insist that the refs be fair tonight in Cleveland and the Celtics regain control of this series and go on to face Golden State. That's it. Thank you, gentlemen. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only roundtable podcast in compliance. Join us again in a couple of weeks when the Everything Compliance gang gets back for another full episode. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.